Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour today is UCLA Professor Patricia Turner. Uh, she'll be giving the Fife Honor Lecture on the USU campus today, 1.30 p.m. in Library 101. The lecture is titled Funky Barns, Austere Libraries, and Cool Cemeteries, Places of Affection in the Life of an African-American Folklorist. Patricia Turner is a research professor in the Department of African-American Studies and World Arts and Culture at UCLA. Her research focuses on racial dynamics as they surface in folklore and popular culture. And her latest book is Trash Talk, Anti-Obama Lore and Race in the 21st Century. Previous books include Crafted Lives, Stories and Studies of African-American Quilters. Uh, So Patricia Turner, pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Thank you to Utah for supplying such a lovely day for a Californian to be here. It's it's uh, we've got the snow and it's beautiful. Right, yeah. but it's not interfering with anything. No. it's just being pretty for me. Just so kind of I'm light. So we yeah. we uh, you're welcome. Yeah, um, thanks for coming in. Um, I wanted to do a little bit of your background. You grew up in. New York State, yeah, Long Eastern Island. Long Island. Yeah. When when people hear New York, they think city, and yeah. I'm not a city girl. Yeah, uh, tell me about that area, Eastern Long Island. Eastern Long Island. Most people know uh, us for the Hamptons. You know, mm. we get a lot of press for the summer community that comes in. Very very wealthy people, and and they're certainly they're certainly there. My roots are from the populations that live there year round. People overlook the folks that sort of keep the place going for a long time. Bridgehampton, where I was born, was a huge potato farming uh, area and very, very agricultural, and you were as likely to see a tractor going down the street as a Cadillac. So that's the the sort of roots of, of my experience there. Yeah, wonderful. And I understand your latest project, we'll get into that later in the hour, is is from that area. Yes, your, your it home, is. I'm, home, I'm, home I'm, I'm, going, I'm going home. Yeah, wonderful. <laughs> Um, so, funky barns, austere libraries, and cool cemeteries, places of affection in the life of an African-American folklorist. Uh, how did you choose folklore? I chose folklore in graduate school at, at UC Berkeley. I was looking around for a project, for, for, for something to, 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 to sink my teeth into that would enable me to document the communities that I'd come from, actually. I was very interested in, in African-American materials. History didn't seem quite right. English, um, my parents weren't the kind of people who had the latest Ralph Ellison book, you know, on the coffee table or anything like that. Their literature was proverbs. Their literature was spirituals. Neither of them graduated from high school. And when I was describing this to a professor, he said, you know, you need to go talk to another professor and take these folklore courses. And I did that. And I remember sitting in a class on Proverbs and just sort of sinking back in the lecture hall chair and going, oh, this is it. I'm a folklorist. <laughs> and I have not looked back. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Uh, I always, When I talk to folklorists, I always want you to define folklore. What is folklore? Oh, you know, and if you've talked to 15 folklorists, you've probably heard 17 definitions <laughs> of what right. folklore is. But um uh, an easy one is the sort of discourse of everyday life and things that um, exist in tradition. So, so I, I keep coming back to proverbs, but the, the the kinds of things that my parents repeated to me, that I repeat to my children, that they had heard from their parents. The study of that kind of discourse. You mentioned my book on quilters, and uh, that's a material example of folklore. The quilters I document learned to quilt largely from their mothers 
and their grandmothers. They teach their daughters and their granddaughters. So there's a traditionality to it. And the the discourse is important in the lives of the, the people who share it, but it's often overlooked by the scholarly community. Hmm. Uh, so you, you, I'm grateful for this. You brought in some uh, some objects. <laughs> I did. Uh, of course, on the radio, won't be able to see them, but we'll have you describe them. Okay. Uh, uh, for us, and this relates to the yeah. title of your uh, yeah. talk. There, yeah. the kind of a uh, uh, retrospective. So, what's the first uh, object that well, you'd like to talk about? The, um, well, we'll we'll start we'll start with the quilt, I guess. Um, and this is, um, you know, most people think of quilts, of course, as um, something you sleep under, you know, that's the sort of standard definition, but it really became um, as much an art form in the 1960s and 70s, and people made decorative quilts, but often still adhering to the rules they may have learned from their parents and so forth. So for the sake of my audience later on today, the students, I brought in a small sort of wall quilt made by a member of the African American Quilt Guild of Oakland, who I documented for, uh, for Crafted Lives. I brought in, um, you know, there's a, I'm, I'm focusing a lot on objects today. One of my earlier works looked, and probably the first time I really dove into studying material culture objects was around a project to document objects that um, degraded African Americans. I coined the term, and I'm very proud of this, Tom, if you Google contemptible collectibles, my name comes up. I uh-huh. coined that for, for my book. And this um, um, letter opener and pencil set, the letter opener is an alligator, and the pencil is an African-American uh, head and male, and the, the alligator is eating the African-American. And uh, juxtaposition of alligators and African-Americans is a long traditional, uh, a long traditional uh, motif that that I talk about uh, in that book, and and we'll briefly hit on a little bit later mm-hmm. today. So uh, collectibles. So these these would have been collectibles. They became collectibles. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, originally, they were, you know, they were marketed. This kind of item was a, a tourist object. Of all things, you'd go into a community and you would buy something that was blatantly mm-hmm. racist and take right. it home and, yeah. <laughs> and and share it with with folks. Uh, uh, and then when some portions of the population began to recognize the political incorrectness of that, uh, looking for that as a way of explaining to contemporary generations what it was actually like for for blacks during the era where in the tourist shops in their communities, this is what people were be buying and being sold. I always use this material when I was teaching the courses to go to help my students to understand what it was like in the era of the Jim Crow South. Yeah, uh, you, you know, we we focus on politics, right? But uh, yeah. pervasive culture as well, right? Yeah, you have to look all around at the sheet music, at the movie posters, at the postcards. Uh, that's what we're surrounded by: the advertising materials, and that's that's what people see in their everyday lives, and what's communicative to them about what the norms are and aren't. Yeah. Yeah. So contemptible collectibles. Yeah, yes. <laughs> I think we would agree on the contemptible part there. Yeah. Uh, what's what's next? Um, 
you mentioned my uh, my book on uh, trash talk, uh, anti Obama lore. Much of that's verbal. You know, you and I were talking before we came on air about the one that most people know: the birther beliefs, alleging that he was not born uh, in Hawaii, but rather was 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 born in Africa in some versions. But there are versions that have him being born in Indonesia, which is actually where his stepfather was from. Um, that circulated mouth to mouth. Uh, online in in all kinds of portals, but I did bring in some, one of the visual examples of the anti-Obama lore. There were always some things like this calendar where for each of the 12 months of the year, you can look at a reprehensible picture of Barack Obama. Uh, one of the slides I'll show later on today puts an outsized alligator um, juxtaposed against Barack Obama. So that motif of the alligator as an enemy, which I can trace to at least silent films and sheet music from the beginning of the 20th century, extends all the way up through the first African-American president. Uh, we'll get into talking about uh, you know trash talk a little bit later as well. So yeah, uh, again... <laughs> Contemptible, right? Yes. <laughs> uh, but uh, in certain areas, popular, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people wouldn't manufacture the calendar if they couldn't sell it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what else do you have here? Um, for my next project, I'm going to be looking at a community in Virginia, which was one of the sources of the what's called the Great Migration of, of African Americans, Southampton County, Virginia. And I was recently there on my first field trip to get a, a sense of the lay of the land. And again, this is something I love to show to students. It's just cotton, you know. And, you know, we're, you and I are both wearing cotton clothing, it looks like. Um, and it's important for students to understand, first of all, that this is how it starts. But second of all, that, um, that this particular cotton comes from a cotton field uh, where the infamous slave uh, insurrectionist Nat Turner wrecked his havoc, having killed the low estimate is 55, the high estimate is 60 African American, uh, 60 uh, whites over a period of four or five days in 1831. And if you go to where he did that, when I, I which I did in November, uh, it's cotton fields. And in fact, the where I picked this cotton, which is where they have the mile marker sign, there was a mule in a field across the street. So it's kind of eerie. You know, this is twenty. This was twenty twenty three when I was there. They're still growing cotton. There are still mules. Uh, the the road is paved. It certainly would yeah. have been paved when he was going through it. But it was a really really evocative experience for me. Well, wow. so it feels like nothing's changed. Or very in some changed. ways, yeah, yeah. yeah. And you 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 picked a little bit of cotton from that field. Yeah. 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 Actually, in case the owners of the field are listening, it was the cotton that blew over their property line to ah, the street. Very good. I, yes, very good. I did not. I did not trespass to wanna, get this cotton. Be on the up and up. And yeah. and, and and for 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 your listeners who travel in that area, they will know that that I was there in November, and that time of year, cotton is that's recently been harvested is just sort of floating in the air. If if it's windy and breezy, it's uplifted and it's 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 traveling around. So that's mm. part of that. Um, part of that uh, aura I was talking about a moment or so ago. Yeah, and there I think there's seeds in there, right? Yeah, is that, yeah. This is, is actually is that a fairly clean. Kind of yeah, propagates itself yeah. yeah. This is floats. actually a fairly clean piece. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so to to process it, you'd have to remove the seeds mm-hmm. and, yeah. and all of that. Yeah. yeah. Unless you have a, a slide, an actual old. A certain generation <laughs> line. Yeah. For people who know what a slide is and people who don't. Yeah. Uh, 
again, I find with my students who have, you know, you and I are dating ourselves, I think, Tom, but mm-hmm. we, um, uh, PowerPoint was something we learned. We did not grow up with PowerPoint <laughs> right. existing. Right. Uh, and that's not true of an 18-year-old now. So in order for them to understand what it is to document, what it was like to document material objects, because I just happened to grab a slide before I left the house. And I wonder if they even know what a 35-millimeter slide looks like. So yeah. I grabbed one. So that, that'd be part of, uh, you know, that, that Funky Barnes Austere yeah. Library is cool cemeteries right exactly tell me a little bit about that that i mean that makes folklore sound fun i guess it is yeah the lecture that i'm giving today that you mentioned it's called the fife honor lecture and the fifes were uh, a married couple of utahns probably the most responsible for the respectability that that utah folklore gets and they um, what's wonderful about the fifes is the connection between the field, um, where they they collected narratives and, and poetry and music, and then the archives, which are now named for them, taking things from the field and 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 putting it in in the library. So I'm sort of mimicking what my sort of heroes and heroines have done in the past. Um, I'm not doing stories so much. Um, with this stage of the project, because what I'm looking at now are are people long long deceased. Um, but I did go to the cemetery at Rising Star Baptist Church in Branchville, Virginia, and looked at the graves, many of which were a hundred years old, but still decorated. There's still somebody coming in and putting flowers on the resting places of people who were were buried a long time ago, and looking at the names and comparing them to the names of the community that their uh, uh, some of their offspring migrated to where I'm, I'm from on, on eastern on eastern Long Island. So there's that stage, but if I don't document it appropriately so that it ends up in some kind of archive or library, it all gets lost. So that's the, uh, the, 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 the connection there. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe before we go to break, and then we come back, I want to talk about uh, Obama and uh, get into some of that uh, that conspiracy theories, right? Yeah. Rumors. Yeah. Uh, you did a previous book on rumors and the African-American yeah. community, Yeah, I seem right? to keep coming back yeah. to it, although I hope the Obama one's the last one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, of course, uh, material culture, art, quilts, yeah. uh, et cetera. But I want to talk about the your latest project you're working on right now. Mm-hmm. We made reference to this. Um, so this has to do with the Great Migration, but with a twist, right? Yeah, most scholars who've examined the move of African Americans from the South to the North have focused on the cities, you know, Detroit, Harlem, uh, after World War II is when the West Coast, Oakland, California, and so forth. So it's very much a rural to urban study. But African Americans went everywhere, right? So my family and their neighbors went from a rural community in Virginia to a rural community in New York, uh, became potato farmers, uh, and were and and went to a very similar kind of economy from the one that they'd come from, but absent the worst of Jim Crow and the kind of racism that they would have faced had they stayed in the South. Yeah. I guess we should make clear, um, you know, these folks who, whether they went rural to rural or rural to urban, where most of the folks did, um, would have escaped 
worse racism, but still had racism to deal with, right? Right. A, a, a nice way of putting it. One of the people I did interview when I was in Virginia was a, a, a cousin, and um, she had stayed in her family. She had stayed in Virginia. Um, her sister had migrated, so I had known her, my cousin, that was her sister uh, in, in New York, but she had stayed. And she went to a through segregated schools. So she talked about in the 1950s and 1960s when she was going to school that the black schools got the leftover books from the white schools. After they were outdated, when they bought new textbooks for the white schools, they would take the old books and they would go to the black schools. Well, anybody who's studied Jim Crow knows that. What she added to the equation for me was she said, and they cut out the important parts. And I said, well, what do you mean? Hmm. And she said, every kid would get, she said, she remembered every kid getting the same outdated math book. And in each of the books, the way to solve the math problems had been cut out. Oh, wow. So they, um, so not only were they in a subpar school with, um, and her school had an outhouse. This is in the 1950s. No running water inside, no electricity. And then books that had been um, had been um, manipulated to to deny any potential for learning in in that sort of situation. She said the best of the teachers developed workarounds. Although I found a letter uh, again archives libraries, I found a, a letter instructing the person charged with hiring black teachers that after he, this white person, after he interviewed them all to make sure to hire the one who appeared the least competent. Mm. So that's the kind of racism that people were trying to get away from in the migration. Yeah. And those who ended up in Bridgehampton went from a place that would have had the forethought to like rip out the solution to the math problems to an integrated school. I mean, they integrated the school when they got there. There weren't a lot of blacks there already, but the children of the potato farmers just went to the local school. And they're, they, yes, they confronted some racism there, but they had all the pages to the math book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so definitely some improvements. Um, are you finding uh, through lines of culture, you know, these people came from the South, yeah. came from Virginia, they transport... Absolutely. That culture and The to folklorist in me loves that. Yeah. Right? So I suspect that the jam recipe that that cousin that I interviewed in November of 2023 would it will taste exactly like the preserves my mother made in Bridgehampton, yeah. right? The, yeah. the, the, the food ways remain consistent. Um, the, 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 the proverbs, the, the, the songs, those kinds of things. Um, my, my, my father's accent changed, but my mother had a Southern accent, uh, her, her whole life. Um, what they thought of a a meal was, was very similar to what they had in the South. So yeah, absolute cultural throughways and connections between the communities. Many of the people, uh, and this is true of, 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 of folks who migrated, whether it was to a city or to a rural area, remained very connected to their families who didn't migrate. And they would spend summers there or make sure to go for the church anniversary. It was a real popular date to go. Um, I've read a lot of obituaries in the course of this work, which would sound depressing. Mm-hmm. But um, 
it's really can be quite quite uplifting and 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 fascinating and you'll find in the obituaries of the people who migrated references to their home church you know so it might refer to the First Baptist Church of Bridgehampton which is where they were where they were deceased but they'll say their home church was Rising Star Baptist Church in Branchville or Pleasant Plains in Druryville um um, identifying that connection. Pastors went back and forth. Mm. I have found that the pastors in the New York churches were invited to give guest sermons in the Southern churches and vice versa. So there's a, even a, you know, a, a sort of a swap or exchange that's happening that way. Mm. Is there, to, so fast forwarding to today, is there still a conscious connection? Yes. Uh, yeah. 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 Now, it's interesting that your father lost his accent. Your mother kept her Southern accent. Was On your, on your father's part, was that conscious? or? or... I'm sure it wasn't mm-hmm. conscious. Yeah. I think my father was more out in the world. Mm-hmm. He was outside of the family a little bit more and outside of the community. So just audio, probably picking it up, talking to more people through the course of, of business and so forth that, that, that his accent diminished. And my mother was more embedded in the community, a, a little bit more of a, a, in, in, in the house. They had a, um, a corner store and she was the proprietor there, but the customers would have been other people from the South as well. So she was getting reinforcement for the accent and um, my, my father was out in the world more. Yeah, yeah. I just, this triggers a memory is, is kind of not 100% related. I, I went, to, I have a sister who lives in Maryland and she took me uh, on a trip to the uh, Eastern Shore, mm. which until they put the bridge in was more isolated, but yeah. you know, um, and I had trouble understanding the lady at the <laughs> the store, you know, this thick Eastern Shore accent. And then the capper is she she claimed she had a, a, a trouble understanding me, with apparently my thick Utah accent. So yeah, I noticed that right away, Tom. Yeah, when the, I came in here, I just said, "Wow, what a thick what Utah. a thick Utah accent." <laughs> so there's kind of some irony there. Yeah, you can't understand me. I can't understand you anyway. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, let's take a break. We're talking with uh, Patricia Turner. She's UCLA professor, and uh, she is a folklorist and has written uh, several books, the latest of which we'll get into talking in this second segment. is called Trash Talk, Anti-Obama Lore and Race in the 21st Century. And uh, her lecture that she's going to be giving the in the Fife uh, Folklore uh, Series, Fife Honor Lecture, is happening on the USU campus today, 1.30 p.m. in Library Room 101. Everybody is welcome. Library Room 101, 1.30 p.m. on the USU campus. It's titled Funky Barns, Austere Libraries and Cool Cemeteries, Places of Affection in the Life of an African-American Folklorist. More following this. You're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. Uh, we're spending the hour with the UCLA professor Patricia Turner. Uh, she'll give the Fife Honor Lecture uh, on the USU campus today. That's 1:30 this afternoon in Library 101. 1:30 Library 101. Fife Honor Lecture is titled "Funky Barns, Austere Libraries, and Cool Cemeteries: Places of Affection in the Life of an African American Folklorist." Everyone is. Uh, invited. Patricia Sterner is a research professor in the Department of African American Studies and World Arts and Culture at UCLA. And uh, previous books include Crafted Lives, Stories and Studies of African American Quilters. Also, Whispers on the Color Line, uh, Ceramic Uncles and Celluloid Mammies, Black Images and Their Influence on Culture. Um, 
and um, I heard it through the grapevine, early book, uh, rumor in African-American culture. Uh, we've made reference to trash talk, anti-Obama lore and race in the 21st century, and I want to get into talking about that a bit uh, uh, right now. Um, so uh, how did you decide to, to, to tackle this t- topic? So as you mentioned, Tom, I'd done two other books on rumors, legends, and conspiracies focused on race, but within the African-American community. And I thought I was done. I thought, I've done two books on this. There's so many other things I'm interested in. And then I was watching the 2004 Democratic Convention, uh, mm-hmm. convention and Barack Obama gave the nominating speech for John Kerry. And people went nuts with affection for him. You look old enough to have remembered those I, days. I do. It was electric. It was electric. Yeah. And it brought him on the national scene. And, yeah. and I, a little voice in my head said, boy, is this guy going to trigger some anti, some some really racist stuff. Yeah. I just you know knew from, from my work. And I just started collecting and I just started developing, actually then old fashioned physical files, but some 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 uh, online files as well, and just started started documenting them, presenting them at folklore meetings, and realized once he was elected and and in the White House that I probably would have enough for a book. Yeah. Uh, so let me contrast my naivete to your your <laughs> knowledge. Uh, so 2008, right? Yeah. The famous scene in Chicago. Um, uh, Obama accepts the you know the yeah. the fact that he's won the election, and I think collectively many of us were quite inspired. We were we'd, we'd, as a nation. We've elected an African American president. Isn't this great? The camera cuts to Jesse Jackson, who's weeping, and, and, um, and, and I didn't see the backlash coming. Yeah, and but it was there and yeah. if you had explored what we would now call the black web you would have you would have seen that. And one of the things I talk about in trash talk is that the venom is ostensibly directed at the Obamas, and it certainly is directed at the Obamas. But if you look, you know, one of the things I've spent too much time doing is looking at the comments that come after a news story, because a lot of this surfaces in in those comments. There's extraordinary hate for the people who assembled to 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 cheer him on, the people who voted for him, the population that we would now call the sort of hardcore MAGA people, or before that they were the Tea Party. Um, People forget that it was the election of Barack Obama that caused the formation of the Tea Party in in, in the first place. When you look at the way they were talking to each other, their disdain is not just for the Obamas, but for the people who campaigned for the Obamas, for the people who would show up in a park supporting, for the people who gave money to the Obamas. It's their sense of a population that thought it was a good thing that a well-educated, um, experienced indivi- black individual could come become president of the United States with a wife that matched all of those attributes. The portion of the population that would vote for him and put him for into office is part of what they have so much disdain for. Mm-hmm. So you saw this coming, obviously. Um, what, where is this coming from? Is it is the simplest explanation? This is racism. What uh, what's where is this coming from? That's certainly a part of it. But the other thing that um, 
I document in the book is the fact that when this kind of thing occurs, there's also a, a subpopulation that looks at a phenomenon and says, hmm, how can I monetize this? Mm. How can I make money off of this impulse? How can I make a derogatory calendar about Barack Obama and sell it? So if we take the birther beliefs, which again are usually the ones I find most people are most familiar mm. with, there are a couple of individuals very early on, pre-Donald Trump's engagement with the birther beliefs, who turn it into a revenue stream through which they support themselves, their full-time jobs become the perpetuation of these beliefs. So in the, the earliest form of this, um, they would develop websites and say, I need more money to research this so that I can find out the truth about, you know, I need to be able to go to Kenya, I need to be able to go to Hawaii, donate here and have these buttons, and, and they supported themselves this way. One of them, after Obama's out of office in 2016, doesn't have a way of supporting himself and becomes an Uber driver. But for eight years, he, he got enough in donations. So if you think about it, he, they're at one extreme. I would argue that, you know, Donald Trump found a way to profit off of the birther beliefs. Alex Jones, would Alex Jones have gotten the prominence he got without, you know, that the, the, the wealth that he has that people are suing him over all comes from him figuring out how to monetize the willingness of some people to accept what he's peddling. Uh, so the, the, the birther stuff, um, I, I think it's probably made it a little easier for those folks to peddle this because Obama is exotic in so, so, right. some ways, right? Middle names, Hussein, uh, yep. stepfathers yeah. from Indonesia, uh, Hawaii, yeah. I guess. You know, born in Hawaii, that's yeah. not the mainland, yeah. you know. Uh, so it made it a little easier, but I, but I guess the impetus here is, I guess, you know, is racism, right? And then right. profit. Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm, so I'm on your website, patriciaturner.com, and uh, looking at a photograph here, which, which is, uh, you, you describe as obviously doctored. Mm-hmm. Uh, shows looks like Hillary Clinton, maybe I can't remember. I don't know who the person is in the middle. Uh, there's a flag there. The the <laughs> two folks are have their hands over their hearts, and Barack Obama does not. Yes. And uh, so you you talk about this kind of phenomenon of of um, uh, you know from the very beginning. Yeah. Rhetoric around, uh, you know, uh, I'm reading here, symbols and displays of patriotism were problematic for Barack Obama. Right. There's a chapter in the book on patriotism and Barack Obama's alleged lack of it, that we had elected a president who wasn't patriotic, who wouldn't sing the Star Spangled Banner, who wouldn't um, repeat the Pledge of Allegiance, who um, rejected the honor that comes with being president, that you're apparently the honorary head of the Boy Scouts of America. Systematically, there are all of these texts, sometimes um, accompanied by pictures, which are alleged to demonstrate 
that you are um, alleged to demonstrate that he lacked the patriotism that people would associate with being with being president, that he wouldn't there wouldn't fly the flag at half staff over the White House for the deaths of important uh, uh, military people and so forth, but allegedly he did for Whitney Houston and for for black celebrities. Um, it's all part of the whole, yeah, the, the whole theme, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, they, they attacked his religious beliefs uh, or cast every suspicion. Every part of his identity, right? Ca- cast so, suspicion over his religious beliefs. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Every part of his identity gets assaulted. One of the questions I'm asked often is, "Well, doesn't every politician, don't white male politicians, have to deal with conspiracy theories, and and rumors and legends?" And absolutely, they do. But no one has endured it the way Obama has, because from you know what are the parts of your identity they're your your patriotism and you know what political party you're a part of he's accused of being a socialist they're your religion he's accused of being a muslim instead of being a christian there's your sexual orientation he's accused of being gay there's a whole cohort of beliefs called the bathhouse barry beliefs that allege that that he's gay so every everything about his identity was assaulted. It is assaulted in 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 these in this discourse. Uh, now, I had not been aware of the attacks on Michelle Obama. Oh yeah, <laughs> I guess I'd, I'm out of it. Um, and so, starting with a, kind of a standard uh, trope, uh, she couldn't have gotten into Harvard on her own, right? Right, right. Um, she did uh, Harvard Law after. Um, an undergraduate career at Princeton. That's not an unusual trajectory to go from Princeton to Harvard. Yeah. Uh, and getting into Princeton, of course, was uh, uh, attacked uh, that that she she did not belong there. That she had gotten some special dispensation. Uh, everyone at Princeton writes a senior thesis, uh, and so her senior thesis was attacked. So those are the beginnings of the beliefs about her during the campaign, sort of 2007 and so forth. And then once she is first lady, they begin to escalate into new territories. There's a wild one you recount uh, in the book, uh, Joan Rivers. Yeah. So, and and if your listeners go today, if they want to see something today, uh, Michelle just turned uh, 60. So go to any story about her turning 60. Uh, this week and anything that brings attention to that and look if they if they haven't disabled the comments already because frequently what happens with these now is the comments are disabled and you're going to see some references to Big Mike and you'll see the male pronoun associated with her and what people are are referring to there is this belief that she's actually transgender that she was born Michael Robinson Big Mike played college football and at the end of the college football career had a sex change operation turning from Mike to Michelle that the comedian Joan Rivers made a reference to her being tranny which she did in a very jocular manner um, and and Barack being gay and uh, within a year of those remarks Joan Rivers did die um, of a botched uh, uh, operation uh, a procedure that should have been much smoother and fine but wasn't and that was all allegedly set up by the the death was allegedly set up 
by supporters of the Obamas as punishment for Rivers outing the um, outing the first lady. Yeah. So who was really a first? <laughs> right, right. And so you know, as you're recounting this, obviously absurd, right? Yeah. Um, and and po- possible motive for yeah. exploding this is monetize this in, in in some way, but how does this uh, how does this spread? I guess there are people who are predisposed, yeah, to uh, either believe it or or maybe not believe it, but spread it. Yeah, and and that one's been pretty consistent, and it surfaces the most. Part of it is a response to, as I was saying earlier. One of the things that many people, whites and blacks, appreciated about, there were many things about Michelle Obama that they appreciated and they drew attention to. Beautiful woman, looks great in clothing, started a garden, smart, focused on her children, many attributes that were very much celebrated. And articles and stories that drew attention to these things just incensed people for whom she doesn't match their standard of beauty. One of the most um, egregious things that I discovered in documenting Michelle was, uh, the Michelle lore was, is part of the proof that she was born male. They circulated a genuine elementary school picture of her, of a, a black girl with braids, and they said, look, you can see she's a man. Mm. Just calling attention to her the basic features she has, and telling the world that they were looking at something masculine. You know, the standards of, 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 of beauty and uh, attractiveness. Um, so they're, they're just, a, a positive attention to her brings out the people who, and what they want to do, is, part of what some of them want to do, is, is stimulate the fury. They like it when they put, oh, look at Big Mike after the story. And then someone who might be looking at the comments who may not be aware of this go, how dare you say that? Mm -hmm. How she's wonderful. She started a garden, all of these things. And they love the fight. Mm-hmm. You know, they 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 love um, the that exchange. You know, the whole the whole trolling mentality and all of that just draws more attention to it. And if you if you like that, you pick it up and you put it on your website and it circulates. Yeah, uh, uh, that must be interesting to research. G- going through yeah. these comment sections, I, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. There, there's some I, I have jeopardy been, here. I I have been known to have a glass of wine at uh-huh. the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. It has happened in the course of this research that after looking at this material for six or seven hours, it, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I would imagine you would you, <laughs> you would need something. Well, let's take another break. Come back, talk a little bit more about this, and then wrap up the conversation. We're talking uh, with Patricia Turner. Um, who will give the Fife Honor Lecture today on the OSU campus, 1.30 p.m. in Library 101. The lecture is titled Funky Barns, Austere Libraries, and Cool Cemeteries, Places of Affection in the Life of an African-American Folklorist. More following this break. Thanks for listening to Access U. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with UCLA professor Patricia Turner. She's a folklorist, uh, her latest book is Trash Talk, Anti-Obama Lore and Race in the 21st Century. And previous books include Crafted Lives, Stories and Studies of African-American Quilters, uh, other books out there as well. Uh, she's giving the Fife Honor Lecture today on the USU campus, 1.30 p.m. in Library 101. Everyone is invited. The lecture is titled Funky Barns, Austere Libraries and Cool Cemeteries, Places of Affection in the Life of an African-American Folklorist. 
Uh, so we have about uh, six or seven minutes uh, left. I want to just wrap up this discussion on your latest book, Trash Talk. So the, the last chapter has to do with Obama legends in the age of Trump. So mm -hmm. updating this, uh, what, what kinds of things are, are, are out there, even after President Obama left office? Oh, the primary focus after he left office are a, uh, a sort of suite of beliefs that we call the deep state beliefs, that he really um, had left an infrastructure in the federal government that would enable him to retain power despite whoever was in office. So so when things were not, when, when in, in, uh, in, in his administration, when things weren't going the way Donald Trump wanted them to go, when Congress wasn't voting the way he wanted them to vote, he would say, it's the deep state that's, that's undermining my success. And Obama was behind that, that people would use the fact that he and his family remained in Washington, D.C. Um, you know, his home was considered sort of a, 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 a place from which he was manipulating the heads of agencies and people he had put in place for the purpose of, of controlling after after he left office. Uh, with the elect, back in election season, again, one of the last ones I talk about in the book was related to uh, accusations that he was behind the theft of the election, which claimed that before he left office, he had um, made a deal with the prime minister of Italy to um, control the satellites that control Dominion voting machines so that votes for Trump in 2020 would electronically shift um, to votes for Biden. So as if before he left office in 2015 and 2016, he had the forethought to know, first of all, that Hillary wouldn't be elected and that the ticket in 2020 would be Biden and Trump and that that magically machines could be could be manipulated to shift the votes, and you know it sounds absurd, um, but the one of the videos alleging that this happened, um, it had like a million hits within like forty five minutes. It, the, all of this was surfacing in the in in around January fifth, January sixth, January seventh. That that god-awful window uh, from my point of view and many points of view uh, uh, that year. Um, just a couple of minutes left. I want to maybe uh, pull out more broadly. Um, are, I guess, certain people maybe are more primed to rumors and conspiracy theories than others? I don't know. Or, or maybe when as a society we're more anxious? Where, where does this come from? Yeah, there's a lot of debate about that, Tom. And again, if you had several folklorists and, and people who study this here, you'd get some different opinions. I think we're all susceptible to ones that reinforce the way we see the world. There certainly are some people who who are primed believers and are going to believe more. But if, if, if again, talking about the very clever people who monetize them, they can probably capture me on something. They could probably capture you. It would just be something that reinforced the way we already see the world and pits somebody we would like to see as a bogeyman, as a bogeyman, and, um, and seems reasonable and fits, fits our, our, our scheme of things. Mm.
Yeah, I guess uh, we shouldn't be too smug, right? I we, try not so, to be. Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, if, if it fit our worldview and we had that need, we yeah. we could be vulnerable as well. Uh, well, we reached the end of our time here. Uh, UCLA professor Patricia Turner has been my guest, and she's giving the Fife Honor Lecture at USU on the campus today, 1.30 p.m. in Library 101. Spring open to the public. Lecture is titled Funky Barns, Austere Libraries and Cool Cemeteries, Places of Affection in the Life of African-American Folklorists. You can find her at uh, patriciaturner.com. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for coming Thank in. you. So It's such an honor to give the Fife Lecture. Every folklorist in America is jealous of me now, I'm sure. The faculty here in this program is so respected, so I'm just thrilled to be here. Well, thanks. Thanks for coming in. And thanks, everyone, for listening. And we'll go out as we do on Thursdays with Leo T. and Skywatcher. It's many cultures, one sky, Skywatcher Leo T. In the sky in the southeastern lightly populated area of Wyoming near the Nebraska border are many interesting sights to see, one of these being Fort Laramie, where so much history of Native American interaction with invading U.S. forces is documented. Also down the two-lane highway is Glendo Reservoir State Park. That's where I went yesterday under bright blue skies with snow on the narrow roadway around the reservoir with granite cliffs above and a few puffy white clouds and names like Sitting Bull Day Area, Chief Red Cloud Campground, no reservations. The only other beans I saw were large formations of migrating birds of all kinds and in the night looking for some aurora action from geomagnetic storms from our star and whatever treasures await from a dark, dark sky, like the Corona Borealis twinkling above the Big Dipper in the Milky Way expanse, or the Council of the Chiefs. And coming back from the Big Dipper in the Milky Way, NASA restores contact with Mars Helicopter Ingenuity after communication dropouts on the latest flyby. Particular mission, Ingenuity launched to the Martian surface alongside the Perseverance rover on July 30th, 2020. It landed on its target less than a year later and soon began its mission of flying above the red planet. To gather information about whether it's possible to control an airborne vehicle on a world with a gravitational pull and atmosphere different from those of Earth. Kept flying and flying until, as we see, it finished its 72nd flight. It has since greatly expanded its purpose, too, taking interesting, crucial images of the Martian area Perseverance is tasked with exploring. It's a region called the Jezero Crater. We've mentioned it many times on this program. A very interesting geological area with ancient river deltas. This small helicopter communicates with NASA ground control via the Deep Space Network, which is the classic line on which tons of space missions talk to scientists on Earth. And one of the Milky Way's brightest globular clusters is emanating mysterious radio waves from its heart. New observations have revealed scientists believe the intriguing signal may be produced by a medium-sized black hole. If true, that would make this result the first of its kind. Researchers think the signal must be produced either by a medium-sized black hole or a pulsar, which is a fast-spinning neutron star that emits radio waves. Both objects would be intriguing, but a discovery of a medium-sized black hole would be a breakthrough. The team discovered the signal while scanning the 47 Tuckanay cluster with the Australia Telescope Compact Array in New South Wales. Globular clusters are ancient groupings of stars scattered around the Milky Way galaxy. And back to the moon, Japanese lander that landed lost power. If the sunlight begins to shine on the lunar surface from the west, there's a possibility of generating power, scientists say, and we are preparing for that recovery. Japan's first successful moon lander may still have some life left in it. The pioneering spacecraft called SLIM touched down on the lunar surface Friday, January 19th, making Japan the fifth nation to join the moon landing club, and they're fifth in the Olympics. And this conundrum, why do Earth's magnetic poles flip? I mean, uh, you read about this and you go, 
actually, why do they flip? And it seems uh, odd. And Earth, our rocky, watery oasis in the cosmos, is the ideal place for life to flourish for a number of reasons. We sit at just the right distance from our home star for liquid water to exist on the planet's surface. The gravitational pull of other large planets helps protect us from the apocalyptic collisions with wandering meteorites, and the planet's magnetic field encircles Earth with protective barriers that shield us from charged particles hurtling through space. Earth's magnetic field is generated by the complex flow of molten metallic material in the outer core of the planet. The flow of this material is affected both by the rotation of the Earth and the presence of a solid iron core which results in a dipolar magnetic field where the axis roughly aligns with the rotational axis of the planet. Paleomagnetic research has provided scientists with the knowledge that the Earth's magnetic field has shifted and even reversed in polarity many times in the geologic past. The transitory period of polarity reversal appears as a geologically instantaneous within a duration spanning up to a few thousand years. It's One Sky, Many Cultures, and the following from northern Utah poet and explorer Margaret Pettis from the collection Temple of the Stars, Sky's Bright Circle. Did you see the moon tonight? Ever bright, frozen white, blue earth veins, picket deep, messages in shadow, mazes of moon words, a cloud of breath where horses stand close-eyed by the barn, and owls and brittle boughs, ghosts of a frozen night, where skies bright circle in their yellow eyes, and spikes of ice on pointed tips of pine. The dawn is captive for just a moment, golden, cold, zero, a world of white, no longer light. Keep the imagination flowing, keep looking up, look around, and get a little bit lost in space. Skywatcher Leo T.